Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Not to brag, but the other day I went to the zoo. It was pretty good. I was there with my friend and his eight-year-old daughter, and we all had a pretty good time. You know what the most popular exhibit there was, by far? The Naked Mole Rats, which was kind of surprising for me, but in retrospect, it actually makes a lot of sense. One, it's winter, and it was a heated exhibit. B, they are fascinating, weird-looking creatures. And third, most of the kids there were too young to have seen the descent, so they didn't find the mole rat's appearance as viscerally upsetting as I did. But I think the real reason that that exhibit was so popular is a very simple reason. Marketing. They called these animals naked mole rats. And I mean, yes, the mole rats are hairless. But they didn't call them hairless mole rats. They called them naked mole rats. And that seems unfair. Because you know what other animals at the zoo were naked? All of them. Not a single animal at that zoo was wearing a stitch of clothing. Now, I'm not saying they should be out there advertising totally nude giraffes or topless red pandas. But if you're going to give some animals a marketing bump, by applying an adjective that makes your target demographic of 8 to 12 year old kids giggle and applies to all animals, why stop at naked mole rats? Now obviously there are going to be diminishing returns if you just start putting the prefix naked in front of every animal, and I'm not saying you should do that. But you know what other adjective applies to all those animals? Pooping. Every single one of those animals poops. And I guarantee there would be a spike in attendance if you started putting out signs advertising the pooping gazelles of the savannah. That's just good business. So, zoos of the world, you're welcome. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by It's Zack Empire. Time is a flat circle is a true detective reference. It's a very sad commentary, and sort of a show synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, It's Zack Empire. I think Time is a Flat Circle is also a Nietzsche quote. It's also not true, except in as much as a CD is a flat circle, and it could be a CD of Morris Day in the Time. Maybe Time's Up. That's a good album. Okay, Nietzsche, and to a lesser extent True Detective, apparently. Your story checks out. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 15, December 1985. This Road to War. Written by Marv Wolfman, drotted by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Bob LaPan, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call, Starfire, Nightwing, Jericho, Raven. Previously in the New Teen Titans. For quite some time now, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, has been struggling with two major problems. 
One, a debilitating addiction to wearing a magical hat that warps both reality and his own mind. And B, his stepson Beast Boy was an annoying asshole. Recently, the beleaguered billionaire attempted to solve one of his problems by submitting to the other, donning the mystical Mentos hat and using it to try to kill Beast Boy and his teenage teammates. When this dramatic, though mathematically sound, approach to life improvement proved unsuccessful, the perturbed plutocrat retreated to the sewers of New York to blow up rats with his mind. While Dayton remained daunted by his dual dilemmas, another parent of one of our protagonists was plagued by problems of her own. Azerathian Enchantress Arella had been searching the rural south for her absent avian empath offspring, Raven. A tobacco farmer with an inexplicable hat was able to inform the diligent daughter seeker about Raven's most recent residence, but by the time they got there, the troubled titan had already fled. A distraught Arella resumed her search. As one of our heroes ran from a family reunion, another joyously anticipated one of her own. Starfire had been banned from returning to her home planet of Tamaran due to an intergalactic war against some farty slave-mongering space lizards. Her parents had sent the intrepid Captain Carass, aka Captain George Papadopoulos, to inform Coriander that the war was over and she was free to stop by for a visit. Starfire, Nightwing, and Jericho piled into Captain Papadopoulos' ship, the excessively apostrophed Explorer, and headed towards Tamaran. But unbeknownst to our spacefaring superheroes, Captain Papadopoulos harbored a secret that threatened to spoil the spicy space princess's long-hoped-for homecoming. Nor was the subject of the conspicuously closed-mouthed captain's confidentiality the only surprise awaiting Starfire. For watching events unfold from afar, the orange ingenue's evil sister, the less-dead-than-initially reported Princess Commander, aka Blackfire, eagerly awaited her sister's return. Back on Earth, the Church of Blood, an evil cult founded by a supposedly slain septicentennial scumbag, had recently recruited the gang's former frenemy, Zack Wingman, an amnesiac alien angel. The strangely sanguinary sect seemed to be scheming up something sinister, and their evil administrator, Mother Mayhem, gloated that their preparations were nearly complete. Gadzooks! With Blackfire back from the dead, will she return her role as the worst member of the Tamaranian royal family? After obtaining the allegiance of Zack Wingman, does the Church of Blood intend to acquire any other former Titan associates with bird-like attributes? And now that his attempt to kill the Teen Titans has failed, what's next on the agenda for newly amoral New York billionaire businessman Steve Dayton? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... She's actually got some pretty fierce competition. Yup. And he threatens to murder one of his employees. Eh, could be worse. I'm just relieved he didn't launch a presidential campaign. On a newly established farming colony in a rural part of Tamaran, Princess Commander hosts a well-attended political rally. She addresses her rapt audience and is like, My dad, King Meander, is a total douche. You know how we all love fighting and battle and stuff? Well, he wants you guys to all be farmers. I know, farmers. You'll probably all have to start wearing ridiculous hats that aren't quite trucker hats and aren't quite visors, but occupy a horrifying liminal space between the two. Is that what you want? The crowd answers that that is not what they want. Nobody wants that. Blackfire continues. And what's worse 
is to prevent a war, he sold my beloved sister, Coriander, into slavery when she was just 12 years old. Commander diplomatically neglects to mention that prior to that incident, she herself had attempted to murder her sister on numerous occasions, and that after that incident, she went to work for the Jerkholz aliens who enslaved her sister on the condition that she personally be allowed to torture Coriander. Probably wise not to bring that up. Some space cops show up and tell everybody to go home, so Commander uses her magic space fire to blow up the space cops. The crowd seems to think that was a pretty rad thing for her to do, and start chanting the rebel space princess's name. I get that she's the bad guy and all, but in the crowd's defense, her name is Commander, and she is a rebel space princess. So, Commander! Commander! Sorry. Aboard the spaceship, the Explorer, Nightwing and Starfire have a chat. Dick thinks Coriander's parents have an ulterior motive for calling her home, which they do, and that Captain Papadopoulos is hiding something, which he is. Starfire is like, what? No way. My parents are the best. I mean, yes, my dad did sell me into slavery where I was horribly tortured and abused for six years, but what about all the times he didn't sell me into slavery, huh? You never bring those up. Let's give him some credit. I think you're just annoyed that I like fighting and sometimes go into a battle frenzy that can only be sated by spilling the lifeblood of my enemies. Dick replies that while her bloodlust is indeed a concern, he's also pretty sure that something weird is up with Captain Papadopoulos. The crime-fighting couple continues their discussion, unaware that a member of the Explorer's crew has been listening in on them from the hallway. Taryai a beautiful young lieutenant, is distressed at what she has heard. She runs to the bridge and asks to speak to her captain in private. Once they are in Papadopoulos's private quarters, Taryai is like, This sucks space ass. Those two Teen Titans are in love with each other, and we two spaceship co-workers are in love with each other. It is bullshit that none of us are going to get to be with the ones we love. Wait, they aren't? The captain is like, Yes, it is bullshit but we all have to do our duty. The two Tamaranians are so bummed out that neither one of them so much as giggles at the word duty. <laughs> duty. What the distraught duo doesn't realize is that like Dick and Coriander before them, they too are being listened in on. From outside their chamber, Jericho has heard every word they said. Damn. Double eavesdropping on some eavesdroppers? That is some classic Teen Titans shit right there. If Joey could figure out a way to do that while walking into a trap and making up new weird slang, I bet the rest of the team would make him their leader. Jericho doesn't laugh at the use of the word duty either, but to be fair, he's mute. He's probably laughing on the inside. A few days later, the ship lands on Tamaran, and Coriander has a joyous reunion with her parents. They all fly up into the sky and have a group hug and yell about how happy they are. It's cute. On the ground, Dick confronts Captain Papadopoulos and is like, I know you're up to something. Now are you going to tell me what gives or do I need to get rough with you? Captain P just goes, you're going to get rough with me. Yeah, that's cute. Then he gives Dick one of those strong guy handshakes that nearly breaks the acrobat adventurer's hand and tells him to shut up. Meanwhile, back on Earth, 
Steve Dayton has put on his Mentos hat and gone full Freshmaker. He orders Dr. Richards, one of the scientists who works for him, to do some dangerous science for him using a made-up nonsense metal. Dr. Richards doesn't want to do science with the nonsensium, but he also doesn't want Steve to use his evil magic hat to murder him and his family, so eventually he agrees to do the nonsensium science. Fair enough. As Steve is practicing his questionable motivation tactics on Dr. Richards, Arella is in Louisiana searching for her missing daughter. A local guide is pulling her through the swamp on a raft. Apparently, a couple of weeks ago, Raven showed up at the secluded shanty town in the middle of the swamp that the guide calls home. The majority of the people in this village seemed to be suffering from leprosy, so they were pretty stoked when Raven showed up and started healing them. A little bit too stoked, it turns out. Arella's guide, who never does get a name, so from here out I'm just going to call him Guidey, informs the concerned Azerathian mother that the stranger seemed to absorb the leper's pain and suffering, but it soon began to overwhelm her. She was experiencing all the pain she removed from the villagers. She cried out for them to leave her alone, but they refused, too eager to be cured of their disease. They tied her to a pole in the middle of the swamp. Each day, Despite Raven's protestations and demands to be released, two villagers would lay hands on her and have their illnesses removed at her expense. What the fuck, Guidey? Not cool! Guidey tells Arella that they are approaching the place where he and his friends have essentially kidnapped, tied up, and tortured her daughter. As they get closer, Guidey notices the entire town seems to be on fire. Uh-oh. Arella rushes into the blaze, intent on saving Raven, who appears to be stumbling around in the flames. But, as she is about to rescue the avian-themed empath, both mother and daughter are snatched from the inferno by sinister red-robed figures. Acolytes of the Church of Blood swarm the enclosure. It is they who set the leper colony ablaze in the first place. Mother Mayhem instructs one of her underlings, a brother brute, to kill everyone in the village and take Raven and Arella as their prisoners. Brother Brute eagerly complies. I'm guessing that guy didn't earn his nickname from his enthusiasm for dry, sparkling wines. Back on Tamaran, Dick and Coriander are lounging around in their guest room when they receive a FaceTime call from Starfire's brother, Ryander. This is surprising, because apparently most of the planet thinks that the prince is dead, but it turns out he's just been bumming around the galaxy with the Titan's old pals, the Omega Men. Ryan says he has some important news to tell our heroes, but before he can deliver his message, his ship goes through a space tunnel or something, and the signal breaks up. Bummer. On the far side of the planet, we see that the evil Princess Commander has been tapping her sister's space phone and overheard the entire conversation. She is interested to note that her brother is still alive, and even more interested at the prospect of him and the Omega Men returning to Tamaran, she begins plotting ways to make her father's forces and the Omega Men fight each other. She turns and speaks to a shiny golden dude who is hanging out in her room, and asks him if he's down to kill some of his fellow Omega Men. He says, sure. It took me a minute to remember who that guy is, but that's Oron. Remember? The guy I call Shiny Reverse Space Jesus, on account of his mother is a space god named Zahal, and he gave up his life for her followers, only unlike his Earth counterpart, instead of traveling around extolling the virtues of the meek, he flies around space murdering aliens at his mother's insistence, and then feels bad about it. 
I guess he's fallen in with Blackfire and her crew now, and seems to no longer feel bad about the whole murdering thing. So, that's probably not a great sign. The next day, Starfire and Nightwing join the royal family, Jericho, and Captain Papadopoulos on a ceremonial hunt. They all ride goofy-looking purple dinosaur horses as they attempt to trap a wisecracking telepathic lizard by shooting him with guns that shoot energy cages. Now that is some good royal space nonsense. Turns out, Starfire's dad, King Meander, is kind of a doofus, and everyone makes fun of him for being sucky at riding dinosaurs. Dick tries to ride his dino up a steep cliff. Captain Papadopoulos tries to warn him that dinos aren't very good at that, but Dick doesn't listen and falls off a cliff. Fortunately, Starfire rescues him and nobody gets hurt. The wisecracking telepathic lizard makes fun of everyone, and then they all have a big barbecue that night. As everyone, including the talking lizard, sit around the fire, King Meander says that he has something important to tell them. Starfire is like, Cool! Can't wait to hear what it is. I just hope it doesn't have something to do with you wanting me to stay on this planet, because this has been a really great visit, but I sure do love living on Earth with my rad boyfriend, Dick, and I wouldn't want anything to mess that up for me. Her dad is like, Well, this is awkward. So, you know how I kept our planet out of the big space war by capitulating to the demands of those gassy space godzillas and selling you into slavery when you were twelve? Remember that, honey? Well, the thing is, ever since that big space war ended, Tamaran has been having a civil war, and I figured that the best way I know to get out of wars is to capitulate to my enemies by sacrificing the happiness of my daughter. I'm, like, really good at that. So, Coriander, you're going to have to go ahead and marry the king of the southern states. Now, I know you wanted to live on Earth, and this is kind of a bummer for you, and the whole being tortured and abused for years thing probably wasn't great either. But if you think about it, I'm the real victim here. Because I feel bad. Now, how about a hug? Starfire isn't exactly in a hugging mood. She and Dick begin to protest, but Captain Papadopoulos pipes up and says, Look guys, I know this stinks. I'm not happy about it either. I'm in love with my lieutenant, Taryai, but as much as it sickens me, it is my duty as the secret prince of the southern states to suck it up and marry Starfire for the good of the planet. So, not the most romantic proposal I've ever heard, but... At least it wasn't on the Jumbotron at a sporting event. Then we get a backup story. Tales from Tamaran. Meander. Written by Marv Wolfman. Drawed by Chuck Patton. Inked by Murphy Anderson. Lettered by John Costanza. Colored by Adrian Roy. And edited by Marv Wolfman. When King Meander was just a little kid, his name was Mythos with no apostrophes. The slave-mongering jerks, the Citadel, declared war on his planet, and it was a big old mess. His older brothers went off to get warrior training, but Mythos was too young. The Citadel jerks said they'd stop wrecking the joint if they could have Mythos's mom, the queen, as their slave, but Mythos's dad was like, fuck that. He jumped in his spaceship and blew up as many of the slave-mongering jerks as he could. Hooray! Then the jerks blew up his spaceship and he died. 
Mythus's brothers came back from their training, and they went to war as well, but they got blown up pretty quick too. So Mythus's mom, the queen, agreed to be the slave of the Citadel, and then there was peace for a little while. Mythus was like, This sucks, but I think I learned a valuable lesson. A good leader must always capitulate to the demands of a powerful enemy. If you sacrifice the well-being of those you care about, bullies will leave you alone for a little while. When my apostrophes come in, I think I'm going to be a pretty good king. Fucking meander. And as eagle-brained listeners will remember, my good-for-many-things brother Corey got himself mixed up in some crisis on Infinite Earth hullabaloo and got banished to Earth-69, where it's always nice. Fortunately, there's a portal or something, so we're able to record remotely. Corey, how's it going? Nice. How are you going? I'm going okay. For the most part. I found out I'm going to have to do something that I've been able to miraculously avoid for the past several years. Uh Uh-oh. What is it? I'm going to have to work a bartending shift on St. Patrick's Day this year. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh. Yeah. That's largely my reaction to that turn of events as well. It's that kind of a a sporty-ish bar, too, right? Not particularly, but, I mean, any venue that vends alcohol is going to be subject to a deluge of people who don't really know what they're doing when it comes to drinking to excess, but decide, why not? Let's give it a shot. Oh, man. Okay, well, good luck. Thank you. It's Mm -hmm. still a couple of weeks away. I have time to prepare or possibly quit the job. (laughs) (laughs) You have options. Indeed. Uh, How are things going down there? Pretty great. Well, you ready to talk about a comic book? I sure am. Corey, what did you think about this comic book? I quite enjoyed it. I feel like the team-up on this one of the artists, Beretto and Tungal, is pretty amazing in terms of the level of detail that they were able to pull off consistently through the whole book. I agree. There was some remarkably well-done and kind of subtle world-building and storytelling that was done through the artwork, I think kind of independently of Wolfman's input, which was really nice. It really added a lot to the story, I felt like. Yeah, and I appreciated as well the I don't know if we, it's an epilogue, but the little story at the end, that was kind of the backstory of Coriander's dad. Yeah, yeah, a little uh, Silmarillion there for, mm-hmm. for flavor of the Tamaran cycle. Yep. I thought this was a very good comic book. I can't agree that I necessarily enjoyed it. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't think it was bad. I think it was really good. I just didn't enjoy the story that it was telling so much Mm. it evoked the the emotions it was supposed to i think but uh it was like oh no oh no just a a lot of bad stuff happened and are we supposed to hate meandar Corey's dad because i do um I'm not really sure. I think there's supposed to be, an, especially with the Cimmerillion bit, an element of sympathy we're supposed to have towards him, where he's like stuck between a rock and a hard place, as it were. But at the same time, I think we're supposed to feel like, like Dick, where he's just like, dude, 
I know I don't have anything to do with what's going on, but I really, really disagree with it. Yeah, I had never really gotten the impression before that in that galaxy's war with the Citadel, Tamaran was basically Vichy France. Uh, and I'm totally getting that impression now that it was just like, oh, you just absolutely capitulated to your oppressors and did that in exchange for the safety of your people in a way that's pretty fucked up. Like, bad job, Meander. Yeah, but it also it poses that moral question that, that comes up throughout history of, you know, is the life or happiness of one person, you know, a, a noble sacrifice to make for... Lots and lots of people. But also, I, I mean, it depends on what scale you're talking about, because yes, he sacrificed his own happiness and more viscerally the happiness and well-being of his daughter in exchange for what he considered to be the well-being of more people, the population of Tamarind. But he also placed the safety of the people of Tamarind above the safety of the rest of the galaxy. So it's whether it's like, on what scale do you operate that kind of thing on? If it's strictly a the good of the many outweighs the good of the few, then it's still wrong because you're fucking letting this planet of evil, slave-mongering, oppressive overlords go unchecked because it makes things easier for your planet and is actively, it seems like, suppressing the, like, the Tamaranian resistance movement on his planet over out of some like paternalistic attitude of no, I know what's best for you. I'll keep you safe. And I just don't like it. It also is a super bad idea because Tamaranians just want to fight, man. And he's like, no fighting. And so once he did all that and put the universe at risk and then the planet erupted into civil war and a bunch of people died anyway. Right. So, yeah, even just on a practicality level, he did a bad job in that regard. And one thing that I had not gotten about his character beforehand, because I think those are all things that we could have seen in previous portrayals of the Tamaranian royal family. But what seems to be new is the fact that he was not trained as a warrior and is portrayed as a weak and ineffectual person, not just a weak and ineffectual leader. Like, I think they went out of their way to make him not just be like the Sonny Corleone who is fierce and hot-tempered but a bad leader, and they made him straight-up Fredo in this. Like, he's fallen off his fucking space horse, he was never trained as a warrior the way the others were, and I think we would have more pathos towards him if we saw that he was, like, maybe strong and confident in his personal life and only understood things as a soldier but not as a leader. But they took that away from him in the epilogue where it's like, oh, no, he was never trained as a warrior, so he doesn't know what that's like. And he's bad as a leader and all of this other shit. And he's out of touch with his people. It's really a kneecapping, I feel like, of Meandar's character in this. Yeah, the backstory doesn't really help too much either because they kind of say, and the reason he's that way is because he watched his dad give up his mom and then his dad get killed and then his brothers go off to avenge it and then they both got killed. So he was like, oh, this is just what happens. Yeah, it's positioning him as not just a weak leader, but as a weak person. And that, yeah, his takeaway from seeing his mother sacrifice her life for the good of the planet was... 
oh, we should sacrifice our women for the good of the planet. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not his sacrifice that he's even doing. It's he's giving up his daughter. There isn't a thing where he tries to plead and say, take me instead, anything like that. It's just, man, I just don't like this meander guy. No, he should uh, meander right out of his leadership role. And that is something that comes up in the epilogue story, too. The Tales of Tamaran, Meander. We see that when he was a kid, his name was Mythus. Was that just like the nickname that his mom gave him or something? Or do Tamaranians just earn their apostrophes on their like space bar mitzvah or something, and then they get named as what their character is going to be? Yeah, that was the latter one was was my guess. Like, oh, he's uh, not particularly strong. He doesn't have a clear vision. We'll call him Meander. Commander, she's, you know, strong, forceful personality. We'll name her Commander. Mm -hmm. Her sister likes spicy food. <laughs> right. Not necessarily spicy hot, but spiced and flavorful food. Yeah. Redolent of coriander and cumin and things like that. Exactly. Which does leave Ryan Durr out of the mix until you realize that the name Ryan is Gaelic for Little King. <laughs> I, I just thought he was so nondescript that like his kid name was Ryan and they just were like, eh, we'll just put an apostrophe R at the end. <laughs> I think it amounts to kind of the same thing. Oh, Little King. He's a member of the royal family, so presumably when he'll grow up, he will be the king. But you don't want him to have a name like Rex because he's not like a, a big tough kid. So, you know, he's, he's a ah, little king. That's what we'll call him. Yeah, the kinglet. <laughs> Adorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was mixed up about the whole meander thing because he's drawn so cool, but he's such a doofus in the whole book. Yeah, they really Fredoed him hard in this issue. And mm -hmm. yeah, I really kept coming back to the whole like, oh, he's like, he's setting up the Vichy French government and it's his job to squash the French resistance. Fuck this guy. Yeah, no, he doesn't come out of this. I did think there was something funny about Ryan Durr and his call he placed to his sister when he was going into space. I was kind of wondering, he says, oh, we're getting cut off. Uh, it looks like I got to end this call. I was kind of wondering if he was faking that because his sister answered the FaceTime call wearing her negligee with her mostly naked boyfriend standing in the background. Yep. Dick, you know, had the decency to turn off his hairdryer. <laughs> but that's about it. So he's one up on Beast Boy in that regard. <laughs> that's, about, that's about it, though. Yeah, he's wearing a towel and she's wearing some gauze and a smile. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a very elaborate space negligee, but I don't think you answer calls from family members while wearing it. Or just, you know, go to voice call. Mm -hmm. Or who knows, maybe on Tamaran negligees are just like, <laughs> I don't know, regular PJs. Maybe. We do see that they have some very interesting fashion conventions on that planet. Mm -hmm. Which, it seemed like maybe Jericho was having a difficult time sussing out the subtleties of. He's like, I'm just going to go naked. And they're like, no, Jerry, hey. Look, look, you have to at least wear a collar and some underpants. Put these Speedos on, man. You're making everybody weirded out. <laughs> Put these Speedos on and for God's sake, cover up your clavicle. There are children here. Yeah, and cultural mores and whatnot. That does seem to be the one taboo is like the bare clavicle. 
Nobody's allowed to do that, but everything else, like midriff, sure. Oh, yeah, you don't want one of those covered up. It's hot here. One Titan who seemed to have no problem with Tamaranian fashion conventions was Dick, because he really did take to the, like, oh, I get to wear the tiny short shorts again? Thank God. I know, they're even green. They are, but I did notice they made him put a towel down on his space horse first. (laughs) Well, you know. Yeah, I think that's a decent rule. Other people might want to ride that horse later, and those shorts are very small. We'll talk about that when we get to close, but uh, Dick's get-up for the the hunting scene is pretty great. Yeah, I needed to get some of it out of the way now, because otherwise the close section is going to be like two-thirds of the show. Mm -hmm. Because, man, those Tamaranians have a flair for fashion. Yeah. The hunting scene in particular, I got some kind of happy nostalgic feelings for, like, I don't know, Herculoids or something like that. It had that kind of goofy fantasy feel to it. It was like a combination of Herculoids and, like, I don't know, either Flintstones or Bugs Bunny or something. (laughs) Like, the creature that they were (laughs) hunting constantly sassing them and basically being like, eh, it's a living. Also, your king sure sucks at this. I thought it was really fun. I got so confused at the end of the hunt scene, I didn't realize that the creature they were hunting was, like, hanging out with them. And I thought they were eating it. And I was like, oh my god, (laughs) they they caught it and they barbecued it? That is horrible. (laughs) But no, it was something else. Yeah, I liked that he was sitting down around the fire with them eating yet another creature, which hopefully was not telepathic. Yeah, less, at least less able to talk forest creature. (laughs) Right. I don't know why that was, like, my thing. I was like intelligent okay fine but talking sassing you can't eat that no no i agree it is weird too that dick was like oh you guys hunt i thought you were at one with nature but there was no indication that he ever thought they were vegetarians and they aren't so they do hunt things to kill just not hopefully talking sentient creatures But I did think it was a weird division that Dick was drawing there, that it's just like, oh, if you're one with nature, you wouldn't hunt. It's like, well, yeah, they actually probably would. A lot of things that are in nature hunt. It seems actually more at one with nature than like, I don't know, raising animals to slaughter, you know? Yeah, factory farms and whatnot doesn't seem very connected to nature. No, although there were aspects of the Tamaranian culture that really did get called into question with some of the things that were mentioned in this. The fact that they were averse to the idea of farming and considered themselves a race of warriors. On the one hand, that plays into why they would resist King Meander's rule. But it also does make you wonder, well, what do they eat? Are they a colonialist people? Like, somebody's got to do the farming. They consider themselves warriors, but it doesn't seem like they necessarily are a mercenary race. So where are they either getting their food or getting their money to buy food if none of them farm? Yeah, it's maybe more like a feudal Japan situation where there's a warrior class and a merchant class. And then, you know, everybody kind of stratified below that. That was one of my first notes as well, though, was like, wow, they sure don't appreciate farmers. Yeah, shitty. That's like the whole rallying cry. She's like, farmers bad, warriors good. And everybody's like, yeah. Yeah, fuck farmers. Like, dude, no. Fuck you, Commander Commander. Man, it's a little bit hard to hate her in that scene, though, when everybody's (laughs) shouting Commander, because she looks like she's putting on the most badass metal concert ever. 
Yeah, badass metal concert, or she's like just the best heel pro wrestler ever. Just the way that she is celebrating when her name is being chanted. It's like, all right, I can see why people are rooting for this lady. Mm-hmm. Horrible, but charismatic. Right. And her outfit, which we discussed before, like with the daisy choker that she's wearing and the floral pattern on the filigree of her robe and stuff. It's an example of what I was talking about with the subtle world building that the art does, because that would absolutely make sense for Tamaranian culture, that they would consider beauty and war being inextricable from one another and not at all mutually exclusive. That says a lot about Commander's character and about Tamaran in general, and I thought that was really cool. Another neat example of of that, I thought, was the hydroponic bay in the spaceship that Dick and Coriander have their chat in. Like, that didn't need to be there, but it made the whole thing make more sense and made you think about like, oh yeah, they're on a spaceship, they gotta grow their food as they're going from one place to another. That's a really cool touch. Yeah, and it's uh, aesthetically pleasing too. And that was another parallel that I had between this world building and uh, you mentioned Cimmerillion earlier. It did seem kind of Tolkien-esque in the way that he deals with the elf culture, elves. Oh, totally. There's all this attention to to detail and fine craftsmanship, but also being totally uh, badass at the same time. Yeah, I thought it was really great. Another actual example of that that I noticed was a really subtle touch that got put in with, I'm sorry, I forget her name, Taryai, I guess, Captain Karas's forbidden love. Her earrings are sextants. So I thought that's a really fun touch to have their decoration for this spacefaring warrior class be a navigational tool. It was just really neat, and and I dug it. And it seemed like that stuff was maybe done independently of input from Wolfman, although I don't know. But it made a more cohesive picture of this race of space aliens, and I thought that was really neat. Yeah, totally. So, speaking of Commander and her colony of renegades, we saw a somewhat familiar face amongst them. What do you think happened to Reverse Space Jesus that made him a bad guy all of a sudden? Um, Reverse Space Jesus. Oron? The shiny dude? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, his mom is a space goddess, and he sacrificed himself, and he goes on blood-crazy murder sprees. Yeah, yeah, I forgot we were calling him uh, Reverse Space Jesus before, but that that makes sense. I I was referring to him as Zahal's murderously manipulated son. Oh, that too. And to be fair, shiny Reverse Space Jesus. Oh, yeah, shiniest we got. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he's ready, thirsting for blood. I, I think he just broke bad from his mom making him kill all those people. Yeah, I can see that having a detrimental effect on a man's psyche. It also makes me wonder, I, I would suspect we'll probably see the rest of the Omega Men soon, which will be nice some, but I'm, I'm nervous about seeing Scary Parrot from Zoobly Zoo Lady again. Oh. And her evil lizard sister. Man, that's been a long time. It really has. I I had forgotten about a lot of these guys. There's the Nosferatu-looking dude who uh, fights people with his space farts. 
Yeah. There's a whole crew of people of those Omega Men that we haven't seen in quite some time. And um, I'm, I looked back on my notes from those episodes and was like, oh, yeah, those guys. That'll be a creepy treat. Indeed. So the cover of the issue, I thought, was very illustrative of what happens inside, which is not something that we always get. We see a bunch of different puzzle pieces featuring different aspects of the Teen Titans and their storylines starting to come together. The main ones that we first see clicking those jigsaw puzzle pieces together are the Raven story is now colliding with the Zack Wingman brother blood story. What did you think of the leper colony Raven slash brother blood storyline? So first of all, the cover is just amazingly cool with the 3D puzzle pieces and everything. And I was pleased to see the Raven storyline starting to come together with the Zack Wingman brother blood one, how it relates to the rest of everything. I don't know how they're going to pull that off. The leper colony thing, I don't really know how I feel about that. It seems like once she showed up and healed a couple people and then was like, hey guys, I need a break, they would have probably been like, okay. <laughs> Rather than we're going to we're gonna tie you to a, a post and make you heal us until you almost die. Yeah, one would hope. I mean, I get that they're in a fairly dire straits there, but... That was really, really disturbing to read. And the, I don't know, the lack of contrition on the part of any of them about what they were doing, including the one who was leading Raven's mom there to deal with it. Like, just like, oh, yeah, just very matter of fact. So we keep your daughter tied up to a post and she screams for us to let her go. But we don't. We just grab her, which causes her immense suffering, but makes us feel better. Anywho, let's get down there. Yeah, the fact that he explained it that way, but was also bringing her mom to see that situation didn't really seem to add up very much to me. He's like, oh, yeah, here's some horrible stuff we're doing. It's just right over there. Can't miss it. There was a weird disconnect there, and it made it a lot more muddled, the idea of, I mean, that whole colony gets wiped out and murdered by the Church of Blood in a really horrifying scene, but I don't think we're supposed to feel the conflicted way that I do about just like, they were doing some awful shit there to Raven. It also robs Raven of her agency. I think it's a much better story and one that you could tell with her being like, this is taking a lot out of me and I need to do it slowly, but I want to help them, but it's it's taxing me to my core. Like, you could have it that way, too. I think it detracts from Raven's humanity that she has to be forced into helping these people, and it detracts from the humanity of these people that they are doing it. I don't think it's necessarily an unrealistic story, but if you're going to have them all get murdered at the end, why not make them be a little bit nicer? Well, maybe that's why maybe we're supposed to feel like, well, Church of Blood is, is pretty bad, but those lepers were gross and deserve to die. Like, I don't know if... I don't think we're supposed to be conflicted about the bro- the Church of Blood wiping them out. I'm pretty sure we're supposed to see that as a horrific act. I don't know. It was a weird choice that I thought was made. One choice that I was very glad that they made, although it certainly surprised me, was that they didn't give ridiculous accents to the leper colony. I mean, by all accounts, given Wolfman's track record, you have a group of rural 
black Southern people living in a swamp in Louisiana, I was expecting some cringeworthy phonetically spelled out accents and was so relieved that we didn't get them. I wonder if somebody had a word with him at some point. Gosh, yeah, I, you're right. I was expecting the same thing. The only funny bit uh, out of all that dialogue that I got, and it really cracked me up, was a new animal noise that I wasn't familiar with. Do you know what I'm referring to? No, I didn't catch that. It's when the guy on the boat is first bringing Arella to the colony, and he says, But that night, lit by the full moon, the animal's so quiet, no squark or chirp. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what is a squark? Is that like a like a duck sound? Like a quack, but southern? Yeah, like a, a, a squawk, but with a southern drawl. We squark down here. Squark. Squark. <laughs> I'm a bird. Squark. <laughs> exactly. So maybe maybe that was Wolfman's like, huh, I got what I was talking to about the way I write people's dialogue. But animals, they didn't say anything about that. <laughs> Yeah, nobody said I couldn't phonetically spell out a ridiculous bird accent. Squark. <laughs> also, the fact that he says that there wasn't a squark makes me wonder if there ever has been a squark or if he's just always hoping and every night he gives the update. Okay, still no squarks, but I'm waiting. Yeah, maybe so. It is also possibly worth noting the idea of this leper colony that much of that story takes place in led me to do a little bit of research. And I think the reason that they chose Louisiana for that is it was the site of the first, and I believe at the time this was written, only active leper colony in the contiguous United States. There's one on Hawaii, but there was one in Carville, Louisiana, that was founded in the late 1800s that was active until 1999. One way that doesn't quite jibe with the story that we are being told is that in the mid-80s, it was still receiving something like 20 to $21 million worth of federal funding every year and was a fairly humanely run institute that had pretty up-to-date technology and living arrangements. Yeah, that is not at all the way this is depicted. There are shirtless children and skinny dogs and ravens tied to stakes. Yeah, and they eat what they find in the swamp when they can find it. But I think it was just a matter of maybe Wolfman having a little bit of information and then making wild suppositions based on that. Mm -hmm. Like maybe heard, oh, there's a leper colony in Louisiana, and then combining his prejudices about swamp culture in Louisiana with that bit of information being like, probably it's like this. Yep. Neither a squark nor chirp. Nope. The other storyline that gets represented by one of the puzzle pieces on the cover, which, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a gorgeous cover. It's really well designed and thoughtful, and I like how it's put together. Uh, it does make me realize that I think I like this cover an inverse amount to how much I like jigsaw puzzles, which I think we've discussed. I, I really hate. <laughs> when I came to your house so sometime last year, there was that puzzle. I was like, oh, you're working on the puzzle. And you just shook your head and just like, stupid, 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 and walked out of the room. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I know you weren't talking to me. <laughs> I assume. <laughs> no, no, I, I wasn't at all. It's a thing where, yeah, I, I think it's come up on the show before. 
It's when there is a jigsaw puzzle presented to me, it is a compulsion that I have to work on it, but it is not something that I enjoy. Ah, like salt to a vampire. Exactly. Yeah, or grains of rice. I have to stop and count every one of them. Mm. Ah, ah, ah. (laughs) That's a a good accent. Thank you. You could coach Wolfman. Yeah. I I don't know why I just made him German and festive. Yeah. Yeah, he count. What? Uh, Vampire accents are are a sometimes thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Anyway, the remaining puzzle piece from the cover is the Mento story. What did you think of that little blurb there? Well, I learned on page 10 how when I feel like people don't understand me, how I should react from now on, which is to raise my hands in the air and above my head and shake them and scream. You do understand me, don't you? Yep. Clear, concise communicator. That is how I would describe Steve Dayton. Yeah, he's really still two dead rats mad in here. At least. I might bump that up to three rats and a full baker's dozen of capital A's. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even if it is your lab, don't grab the guy that works there with the animated ground or floor material and shake him. Yeah, that's just bad management. People don't like that, Steve. Or when you threaten their family. Yeah. That made me wonder, actually, there were a few things that made me wonder whether the man that he is threatening is supposed to be like a weird reference to Mr. Fantastic. Like, is that a weird swipe that he's taking at Marvel Comics? Because the guy is named Dr. Richards. He has the white sidewalls on his hair. He's a scientist and he threatens the man's family. And I was like, oh, is this what Reed would be up to if he hadn't taken an ill-advised space trip? Mm. being threatened to be pressed into something thinner than onion skin man that is a threat that is thin it is very thin thinner than the radiation shielding on a certain scientist spaceship that was supposed to prevent cosmic radiation yep i think that proves it is a swipe at reed richards (laughs) onion skin to radiation exactly i think my favorite thing about the little mento bit is the way that they transition from it to the swamp part of the story, where I don't know if I've seen that before, where there's kind of half the page has a white background, the bottom half of the page has a full like splash of uh, the swamp, and the final panels of the Mento story are superimposed atop the swamp bits. Oh, yeah. I hadn't really noticed that either. It went pretty seamlessly. But yeah, it's it's another example of some really innovative layouts that have been kind of a hallmark of this series ever since it switched to like the Baxter paper and the more deluxe format. Yeah, speaking of which, that was an, another thing on the, the cover, uh, a couple of things that intrigued me and like sort of primed me like, ooh, this is going to be a good one. A, it's a 1984 Eagle Award winner, which I had to look up because I didn't know what it was. But B... Mm-hmm. It says in large letters above the title, more story, no ads. Yeah, you get an ad on the back and you get like an ad for subscriptions. But other than that, it is all killer, no filler. Man, they must have had to have been selling a ton of these things to A, afford not to advertise as heavily and B, use the fancy production process. 
Well, it had a significantly higher cost than, I mean, it's about twice as expensive as the other comics that they were selling at the time. In 1985, they were charging $1.50 for it. And this version of it was just put out in the direct market, which meant a couple of things financially for them. First of all, they didn't have to worry about a return rate the way that they did with newsstands, where they would buy back at, I believe, a discount the unsold issues at a newsstand. And they didn't do that for the direct market issues, I don't think. And you also knew that a year down the line, you were getting a reprint of it that would be sold in the, at the time, more traditional, like, spinner rack sales. So you knew you were going to be getting kind of double the bang for the buck for the artwork that you were paying for. So, I mean, there were ways that they were recouping that, but I think it was them trying to work out different revenue rates. Well, I'm glad they did, because it is uh, pretty enjoyable. So in previous issues, you had expressed wondering what's going on with Nightwing and Starfire's relationship. And here we kind of see that answered to the degree that, yeah, he's he's worried she's not going to come back to Earth and he's freaked out that she's getting back to her more murdery roots. But the way in which he handles that conversation and that interaction seemed, you know, pretty typical to me, Nightwing, where he's just like, hey, I, I, I disagree with things and now I'm going to walk off and be sullen. Yeah, I think that is a pretty standard dick move. Trying to quantify your emotions in terms of logic and then using that as a shield against your feelings. Um, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a note in there to myself, something to the effect of it seems like Dick Grayson's being a real jerk, but that's not too far off from how I might <laughs> process a, tr- a tricky situation. So I know I'm supposed to like kind of be mad at him, but at the same time, it's like, mm, it is sometimes easier to make a logical statement and then withdraw, which is not really super productive, but I can understand where he's coming from. Yeah, absolutely. We also do have the big reveal at the end of this issue that Captain Papadopoulos is the person that Starfire is going to have to marry and that he's not too stoked about it either. No, and to add insult to injury, when Dick tried to rough him up, he did some some Aikido or something (laughs) on Dick and grabbed him by his thumb and dumped him on his butt. He looked so annoyed at Dick that Dick was even trying to get physical with him, which totally makes sense. I mean, presumably he's had similar training to Starfire and has the same abilities that she does pretty much. So, yeah, Dick just being like, tell me what you know. He's just like, what? What the fuck are you doing? Well, the guy's also, you know, very high cast if they have a cast or royalty or something. And Dick, like, walks up and grabs him by the lapel and scrunches it up and is like, <laughs> meh, 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 gets in his face. And yeah, you could see him just being like, oh, I should just fireball him, but I can't. How annoying. Well, you also see that, yeah, he tries to give Dick advice later on about, like, hey, your horse can't do that. And Dick's like, we'll see. I think I know something more about these dinosaur horses that you've been riding your entire life than you do. It's like, Dick, I get it. You don't like Captain Papadopoulos, but he clearly knows more about dino horses than you. Uh, Terret. That's the term for a dino horse. They're terrets. Oh, I'm sorry. They apparently have only two teeth. Oh, yeah. Like a top one and a bottom one. (laughs) 
that comes in the mouth is like a little round shape. They're really. cute. I like them. They're cute from the side, but from the front, man, they look like unintelligent. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you got to do something to differentiate them from the uh, Scarret. Is that what the thing that they're hunting is? Or am I just thinking of Tom Scarret? <laughs> <laughs> Let's call it a Scarret. I'm sorry. It's the Dragget. Oh, no, score, you did, that was like a portmanteau of the score with two R's and a dragget. Oh, yeah, because the dragget likes to eat score. Barbecued score, yeah. Yeah, and you are what you eat, which makes him uh, Tom Skerritt. Exactly. Well, are you ready to get into the minutia? Yes. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, we have a lot to talk about in this category, so let's get it out of the way first. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you want to discuss? Oh, man. Yeah, there's kind of in many ways too much to talk about. So I'll just narrow it down to a couple key things. One, you talked about her earrings already, but Taria, I don't know how you say her name, but um, Karis's erstwhile love, I called Space Jane Fonda. Oh, yeah, I can see that. She's got that kind of 80s aerobics look going on, but coming up into a partial cowl that lets her hair spill out of the top. It is a good look. Yeah, it's a 90s Jean Grey type hair cowl but yeah on a jane fonda workout outfit with as i said like sextants for earrings it's a good and very distinct look there are so many tamaranians who have unique looks of what look like they should be uniforms but i guess everybody gets to design their own uniform which i guess means the term uniform doesn't really apply but there's just some really cool looking tamaranians the one that i think was maybe my favorite i call twirly mustache man with battle tiara <laughs> do you know the guy i'm talking about he is on page six. Oh yeah jericho is over his shoulder but yeah he's a twirly mustache man with a rad battle tiara and i like the idea of a dude wearing a battle tiara why the fuck not yeah it gives him a, a real 80s look too for some reason i feel like headbands were a much bigger thing back then yeah i can see that also, I don't know if he's a wizard, but he sure looked like a wizard, uh, Princess Commander Space Wizard in the opening. Just fucking rad looking dude with some yellow and green robes and a space shillelagh and some kind of like a magic Bluetooth hat. Yeah, I referred to him as her hype man. Oh, totally. I think he just stands next to her and like waves his shillelagh to get the audience going. Yeah, what was the guy from uh, Arrested Development who used to do that? Baba OJ? Oh, yeah, he had the stick. Yeah. But yeah, in addition to that, we also had kind of a modification of Raven's outfit going. First of all, where did she get her clothes back? Didn't they explode when she fell from the sky? That is the mystery for the ages. It's one of them. Another one would be, what the fuck happened to her sleeves? Did she form them psychically? And then maybe she was too sleepy to make more? Because now she's got a sleeveless version of her raven cape going on for herself, and it's not a bad look. Maybe it's a coloring a coloring issue? Did they take her gloves? Or yeah, maybe they took her gloves off because they wanted to get all the healing they could. Ugh. Not cool. Mm -mm. And yeah, I don't think we can neglect talking about Dick's hunting attire. 
He's, he's got green underpants, green boots, and a red shoulder harness, and that's pretty much it. And, well, like a giant, like a collar, but that's like a bib in the front and the back <laughs> that's attached by the shoulder harness. A dicky, I guess. <laughs> or, you know what? Maybe it is just a bib. I, it's like I was saying, I think there are specific rules that it's just like, okay, midriff... Don't bother covering that up, but for God's sake, put something over your clavicle. Well, it is like kind of a slightly modified version of the one that Karas is wearing. Mm -hmm. But it's done in his old Robin colors, kind of. It would have been nice if they could work some yellow in, but it's definitely reminiscent of his original outfit, which I thought was a nice touch. Also, it was very evocative of the Masters of the Universe action figure kind of archetype. Oh, yeah meaning that they use like the same mold for He-Man and Skeletor and everybody else and then stuck different underpants on them. Right. But yeah, the costume is the underpants and maybe some battle armor on the shoulders. Mm -hmm. I also wonder how he felt about having the full boots instead of the little elf shoes. Oh, it's got to feel weird. Yeah, I wonder if he was advocating one way or another on that aspect of his outfit. Like, maybe they couldn't make the little elf boots, or maybe they tried to give them to him, and he's like, no, I'm a grown-up now. Seems like boots are a pretty standard uh, Tamaranian issue. They all got boots. And we also talked about Jericho. When we first see him on the hunt, he looks super happy. He is carrying a big gun and appears to be naked. And then when we see him later on around the fire, he's wearing a collar and some underpants and looks sad. And I wonder to what extent those things are related. Oh, yeah. Pretty sure he was chagrined to be forced into a speedo Mm -hmm. yeah there is a ton of other fashion everybody has very specific looks king meandar has a scarlet witch style pointy face framer and a nicely french braided beard but there's just a ton of other stuff to talk about was there any specific ones that you wanted to bring up before we move on Yeah, just one last one um, that's on page 21 at the bottom, and it's the campfire scene. I guess what is a royal guard or something like that uh, standing outside, and his getup doesn't at all really match any of the other Tamaranian stuff. He looks very like Lord of the Rings meets science fiction, like something out of a mid-80s heavy metal magazine. I was thinking Marvel Asgard. He, He has that kind of thing going on. I can also see if they tried to give Hawkeye updated 1990s battle armor, it might look a little bit like that. But it is a very distinct, elaborate look. And that's one of the things that I was talking about when I was like, I guess everybody on Tamaran gets to design their own battle armor. Good for them. Yeah, his getup is amazing. Like the front part of his helmet around his face looks like it's got like giant moth ears or something on it. Mm hmm. That and the purpleness was what reminded me of Hawkeye. Yep. Yeah, it's a very distinct look. Let's get to one that gave me actually a lot of trouble. Were you able to find either a timestamp or a show-and-tell in this issue? No, not really. I was looking for a timestamp, but... No, I came up blank on that score, too, so I decided to go with a show-and-tell which was uh, Dick exclaiming, my gun forms an energy cage when he shoots his gun and it forms an energy cage, which I understand his surprised delight at that, but it also seems like maybe they should have told him that before the hunt started. I might have said the same thing if I shot a gun and I did that. I think it 
probably more likely I would just say, whoa, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Well, then, I think we should take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another a bozo, either literally or metaphorically, would you like to discuss? I think the best zinger in here for me was, I believe it was on page three, when a commander, command, sorry, commander hurls the insult, weak drawers. <laughs> Wait, who does she call weak drawers? It's spelled D-R-O-R-S, I think. I looked it up. I couldn't really find any reference for it, so I don't know if that was them making um, Tamaranian insults up. Yeah, I think that's just like a space word. Yeah, but I was thinking of it as like, you know, lame underpants. <laughs> yeah. Weak draws. I think that's a good one. She also calls her father a coward there a few times and uses the word weak a number of times. I decided to go with a different example of Meandar being insulted, and that is when Dick says very casually to Starfire, your uh, dad's not much of a sportsman, is he? After he has just fallen off of his space horse. Mm-hmm. And Coriander says, nah, but he tries. Oh. It's like, oh, that, that makes it so much worse. Yeah, that hurts. Well, the Tamaranians are certainly a dramatic people, so we have no shortage of options for this category. Who was the president of the drama club? Who acted or overacted the most dramatically in this issue? Yeah, I had um, a lot of choices to draw from, but for me, the clear winner was Meander. I had the same thing. I was a little bit tempted by his daughter Commander's dramatic display of pro wrestling posing, but I decided to also go with, yes, Meander throwing his head back to the sky and saying, how can you forget there are sacrifices to be made for the good of the people? Sacrifices we must make. Pretty good. It's difficult for me to not imagine him talking like Brian Blessed. Yeah. And then the panel following that one that you mentioned, he also just then just like grabs his own face real hard and so much drama. Oh, Absolutely. It does make me like him a little bit more if I picture him being played by Brian Blessed. So I'm going to start doing that. Fair enough. And now I really want to see a version of The Godfather where Fredo is played by Brian Blessed. (laughs) Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your... Beast Boy. Yeah, so I went with uh, Dick Grayson for not listening and for falling off as Terret, and also in a couple places for basically speaking on behalf of uh, Coriander when she was capable of speaking for herself. I agree that that is a very reasonable choice. Um, I decided to go in a different direction. I think he did some pretty cool stuff that outweighed those bad things. I decided to go with Jericho as my beast boy for not speaking up and for sulking about them making him wear a shirt when he could have voiced his concerns 
to Coriander about what was going on. I think it makes sense for Coriander to think that Dick was just being paranoid and maybe a bit too in his feelings about what was going on when he's suspicious of Captain George Papadopoulos. But Jericho had the same concerns and never brought them up. And I think that Coriander might have been more willing to listen to him. Yeah, that's true. I guess he didn't really make use of his eavesdrop begotten information. No, he was too busy sulking about the fact that they made him put on a space dickie. Um, and conversely, I had Dick as my Aqualad. Who did you have as your Aqualad? Whoa, interesting. I had Raven for initially helping the lepers, but then I also had a, the toss-up because Corey was able to save Dick despite his own foolishness and was generally pretty thoughtful about everything despite the incredible emotional roller coaster that she must have been experiencing with all that heaviness getting dropped on her. I agree, although I felt that she was, I mean, I know it's in her character, but uh, I think even for her was incredibly naive about the situation on her home world. I can understand where it's coming from, but she seems to have this idealized version of her family, despite the fact that her family literally sold her into slavery when she was 12. Yeah, I agree that that's, that's harsh, but that's probably how she has to deal with it. Yeah. I had Dick as my best, despite also noticing the bad things that he did and that he really was kind of a dick in the way that he went about things. He trusted his detective instincts and was correct about what was going on and that something was afoot, specifically something to do with Captain Papadopoulos. But more importantly... He used his detective skills to figure out how to work a space hairdryer. Like, when he sees the Tamaranian hairdryer sitting there, it is very clearly shaped like a, like a ray gun, and he's on a spaceship. But he was able to use his detective skills to not only be like, oh, given the elaborate nature of Tamaranian hairstyles, this has to be a hairdryer. And had the bravery to point a space gun at his head and turn it on and the strength in his conviction to know that it would be a hairdryer. But also, given the sheer volume of their space hair, that space hairdryer might be more powerful than some ray guns. So learning to use it correctly and not blowing his head off with it is what earns him Aqualad title for oh. this issue. Man, that's, um, I don't know if that's raising or lowering the bar. I'm pretty sure he pointed it at some towels before his own head. Well, that's pretty smart, too. <laughs> Fair enough. Corey, what was your favorite panel? There was so much good artwork in here. It was a little bit tricky to narrow it down, but... I wound up going with what I called uh, Homecoming Happy on page eight, and it's the first reunion between Starfire and her folks. Very nice. They fly up into the air in a group hug. It's pretty impressive and also very sweet. Despite my trepidation about Meander's leadership abilities, it's a very sweet moment. I had a panel on page 22, which is a full-page spread that I called Sad Marshall Patane Scarlet Witch, which is King Meandar looking sadly at his hands, wearing the pointiest version of his Scarlet Witch hair framer. 
it's just a beautifully drawn panel uh, when he is copping to the fact that he has called his daughter home under false pretenses. It's just a really nice panel. Another one that I liked a lot was Brother Brute's Murder Medley. That's on page 14. And it's another one where it's just like a really nicely imaginatively laid out panel. The page is bifurcated by a laser blast from Brother Brute. And what's happening is horrific, but it's drawn really, really well and laid out in a very innovative way. But I think my favorite is on page 17, and it is the king falling off of his horse and landing with an oof and saying, Oof, it was an accident. The turret bolted. Pretty funny. It was funny to watch him fall on his face because fuck that guy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wa-poot! In the year of our Lord, 1987, as we do go from the month of the reprint, and the month of our Lord, February, what was Aqualad probably up to wa-poot? Yeah, Aqualad was up to being politically active for a cause that is near and dear to his aquatic heart, which is getting President Reagan's veto of the attempt to get the Clean Water Act um, through through Congress, getting that veto squashed, building unity across the aisle, and getting that, that vote passed so that the Clean Water Bill could be enacted. And on February 4, 1987, it happened. Votes of 401 to 26, everybody pretty much was able to get behind and, and get the bill passed despite the uh, the veto, uh, despite that Reagan said it was a bill that was loaded with waste and larded with pork. And uh, a large part of that was a really impassioned plea that uh, Aqualad made to the House. And so good on Aqualad for doing that. He did also, strangely enough, bump into to Sammy Hagar, who was also there lobbying to get the uh, 55 mile an hour speed limit abolished, but the, the House <laughs> um, balked on that. And uh, the amendment to the uh, the highway bill that would raise the speed limit to uh, 65 on rural highways was uh, was canned. Ah. Bad for Sammy, but good for Aqualad and good for the water. I wonder if they also maybe had a brief conversation about their various experiences with alien abductions. Um, anything's possible, you know. I, I don't know. I imagine Hagar was in not the not the best of moods, but who knows? Maybe he had a, a little stash of Cabo Wabo with him that he, he hit <laughs> after the... Uh, after the failed attempt. It's possible. I do love the fact that he, to this day, insists that lyrics uh, for his band Montross were placed into his head by alien intelligences. I did not know that. (laughs) Well, that was one thing that Aqualad was up to, and it actually relates to some of the other things that he was up to. After successfully lobbying to have Reagan's veto overturned, Aqualad was feeling, well a little bit uncharacteristically vindictive. So he he thought, oh man, I'm really annoyed with Reagan. What would take him down a peg? I bet he'd really hate it if that song, Ronnie's Rap, where a guy pretends to be him and raps about being president, I bet if that got more popular, that'd really cheese him off. 
So he started heading around to various radio stations and trying to get them to play the song Ronnie's Rap by Ron and the DC Crew, a rap parody that purported to be by Ronald Reagan. And Aqualad was successful in this. He got the song up to 94 on the pop charts, which may not sound that high, but for a novelty song at that time, pretty good. Also for a novelty song that was really, really terrible, pretty good. Anyway, as part of this media campaign, Aqualad started doing some interviews at various radio stations and ended up sitting down for an interview with Larry King. They talked about a lot of things, but at one point, during the interview, Aqualad sensed that something very important to the universe was happening right then. His aquatic senses could tell that friend of the show Devin Tuhey was being born. <laughs> and he was so surprised at the impact that that would have on his life that he accidentally sent out a telepathic blast, which caused Larry King's first heart attack. Oh, no. Uh, Larry King survived and went on to have several more heart attacks, so don't worry about him. Uh, probably best to get that one out of the way while he was young and healthy. Yeah, don't feel bad, Devin. Not your fault. You were barely born. You can't hold yourself responsible. But that is what Aqualad was probably up to in the year of our Lord, 1987, and the month of our Lord, February. And as it was just February now... Happy birthday, Devin. Yeah. Slightly belated. The reason that I knew that it was Devin's birthday was because he informed me about that. Uh, and if you would like to get into touch with us, well, there's a myriad of ways that you can do so. One of them is we can be reached by our P.O. Box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up in uh, other aspects of the internet, wherever you might seek to find us. We're on the Tumblr, the Facebook, the Twitter, the Instagram, the LinkedIn, probably Grindr. Um, Even a hamburger sandwich. <laughs> what? Oh, just the way you were saying those sounded old timey, so I thought I'd throw that in. Yes, you can find us at... Sticking with the old-timey factor, that would be a hamburger sandwich at AOL.com. That's <laughs> <laughs> cute. Dungarees. Angel fire. <laughs> Those are all equally old-timey words, right? All right, yeah. Your story checks out. <laughs> Thank you. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we've gotten some, some lovely ones lately. Uh, just type into your internet browser. Tighten up the defense. It's the witch's hair. Everyone will know what you're talking about, <laughs> including Corey, who certainly listened to this most recent episode. Right, Corey? Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> sure. <laughs> hey, I listened to the last one. I appreciate that. Not the one where I talked about the witch's hair, though. Uh, no. I, no. Okay. Five stars. Thanks. You're welcome. So, you know, just leave it wherever reviews can be left. Maybe just write it somewhere on a wall. I don't care. Break the law. It's fun. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you donate, you get access to a ton of bonus material, including the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. 
That's the full name of the show. That is where me and my lovely and brilliant wife, Lisa, discuss 1970s Howard the Duck comic books. I think it's a good show, and you could listen to it there. You also get access to a ton of other bonus material, uh, some various special episodes that Corey and I have recorded. There's also a bunch of video comic book reviews of both classic and some newer comic books that I've done that are up there. But mostly donating is a way to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. So thank you so much for doing that. It, it means the world to me. Oh, you know what else you should do? I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but you should listen to Garden Plots with Skeletor. It's a gardening podcast that is hosted by Skeletor, and it's really, really great. A new episode of it just came out a couple of days ago, and there's an upcoming one where I do the voice of Merman that is maybe the most challenging voice work that I've ever done, but I'm pretty happy with how it came out. So, you know, you should check that out. Also, you know, if you could say nice things about it, I'm a little bit self-conscious now that I found out that there's a new He-Man cartoon where the guy who does the voice of Batman for Batman the Animated Series does the voice of Merman. So, you know, you should uh, leave some reviews for Garden Plots with Skeletor because A, it's a great show, and B, it'll make me feel better about not being the best person to voice Merman right now. Thanks. And... I don't know. You got anything to say at the end, Corey? Um, squark. Squark, indeed. Squark, I say squark. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. And they knew it. We got some more postcards from Australia, so those are nice. Oh. One of them has wombat fun facts. The other one is about the ibis. Wow. Uh-huh. Nice. Wombats poop cubes. No. Yes. But no. That's how they do it. They got big square butts and they make cube poops. That just doesn't, like, that doesn't sound natural, like, for nature to make square poops. Well, there's nature, and then there's Australia nature. Mm. It's just doing its own thing with right angles. Yep. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Yeah. Wapoot! Ah. Wapoot! Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> All right, let me try that again. Okay. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Yes. Wapoot! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Try again. I just won't say anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes? Well, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I did that on purpose. I will really be quiet Good now. job. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs>